I realize that several of you, I talked to some of you this morning even, uh, several of you have been uh, in the latter or the last portions of baseball season. Uh, there were some of you, matter of fact, I talked to one grandparent on their way back in the church this morning that said somewhere this past week, they got home somewhere in that one to two o'clock in the morning range from watching ball games and traveling around. And so uh, even our one of our praise and worship uh, uh, instrumentalists and vocalists up here, Jared, uh, has been coaching a ball team. And I know they had games that they played very well, some games they wish they would have played better, but uh, have had a great time finishing very high in the state. And so we're proud of them and glad they got those opportunities. Uh, also appreciate those who, um, who, are, who have those opportunities obligations who do those well, but also hold church as a high priority to be able to be here on Sunday mornings. Those things are, that's an honorable and appreciated thing. I look back to my own years playing baseball and, uh, and I, I enjoyed those years. I was a catcher. Uh, I'm not sure if you played catcher as well, but I enjoyed playing catcher. Uh, one of the goals was to, uh, was to obviously not let a ball pass. And quite honestly, when I was placed as a catcher, it was in seven and eight year olds, if you remember those years. In seven and eight year olds, the catcher really doesn't count for much in the game, to be honest. Uh, I was put there because I'm pretty sure that was the place I could hurt the team the least. Um, pass balls don't matter. You don't have to catch anything. Unless there was a play at the plate, you pretty much were a, a, really just a bump on a log uh, as a team is concerned. But, but I enjoyed the position. I, I guess there wasn't much pressure on me. And then I learned as I got a little bit older in nine and tens, you know, you got to start catching that, that, that pitch. Uh, I got a little bit better at it, not in any way claiming that I was uh, an elite catcher by any stretch, but I uh, got to where I enjoyed the position and played it a good bit and, and, uh, and was fairly successful in, in uh, some endeavors. Some of the things I remember playing baseball, though, I had a, a bit of a tendency uh, in myself, and it really helped me learn to be a better catcher. You see, part of the job of a catcher is to know the batters that were coming up. I didn't play in a, 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 a time frame or years when the coach called pitches. My job, and especially in the upper years, varsity uh, baseball and, and beyond, was that I called the pitches, which means I needed to know those batters that we were facing, those who were coming up, what their tendencies were, what pitches they would chase, what pitches they hit really, really well, right? And so I had to know those things, and I would call to the, to the pitcher what pitch I wanted and where I wanted it placed and those sorts of things, and the pitcher would do the best he could. One of the things I would go to, a bit of a strategy of mine, is if we ever got up in the count on someone, if there were maybe zero balls and two strikes, or one ball and two strikes on the batter, one of the things I learned pretty quickly was throw him a pitch somewhere around his nose, right over the plate and about nose high. You want to know why? Because when that baseball comes at you that high, right about right here, it looks like a beach ball. You think you can hit it so far, and I'm going to tell you what, batters time and time again would swing at that pitch, and because of where their bat has to begin, when they swing at it, the angle was way off. It's hard to hit. They'd be swinging a bat across the top of it, and if I ever got 0-2 on you, I would <clears throat> give a signal for a fastball high, maybe a little bit tight, but I would flash my glove up a little bit and then address, which meant throw that ball up high, and I'm telling you, batters chased it all the time. I happen to know this because I was that batter. <laughs> I can remember vividly as a young ball player, even in my later years, I can remember if the count was ever 0-2 against me and I was the batter, my coaches, lay off the high one, batters, lay off the high one. I can remember in nine and tens when I was a young man, I can remember when a pitcher would throw a high pitch at any time in the, in the at-bat, the, the, the coach knew me well enough to know that when I rocked back and went forward, I can remember swinging a bath that as I started swinging, I could hear my coaches in the dugout going, no, <laughs> they knew I was going to swing at it. There was only one time 
I remember one that was thrown over my head and inside, and I hit that ball. You know how familiar with a tomahawk swing is? I stepped outside and hit that baseball right here. Now, I bounced it over the left field wall, one in 150,000. But when I went by the coach, I went, see? You know, like, that's what I felt like anyway. Let me tell you what, I was the one, but nine times out of 10, if it was out of 150,000, 149,999 times, you want to know what happens when I swing at that high pitch? I go back to the dugout with a look of shame. I don't even want to look at my coach. My coach's name when I was a kid was Skip. My coach's name when I was an adult was Kim. When I was going back to the dugout, I can remember bat in hand, looking at the ground, not wanting to make eye contact because I had done again the thing that I knew not to do, the thing I knew better than. I knew the thing that, that, I needed, that I needed to stay away from. I knew what I needed to do, but for some reason I found myself doing the things that I did not want to do. Does that sound familiar to you from a biblical standpoint? Romans chapter 7. This morning we're going to spend a little bit of time reading a passage that was written to the believers in the, the Roman, Rome area. We'll say that, all right? And as it was written to them, it is people that are speaking from an experience, or it is a man who is speaking from the experience of what it means not just on a baseball field to walk back to the dugout with a bit of shame and self-loathing and frustration, maybe even disappointment in yourself, maybe even embarrassment in yourself, but this is coming from a spiritual standpoint. And so I'd invite you this morning to stand for the reading of the Word. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. What a frustrating, frustrating passage, only because as you hear these words, imagine the frustration in the writer's mind. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing." Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. God, we come before you this morning, maybe beginning in an analogy of something as silly as swinging at high pitches. Yet, God, we recognize it is in the frustration of things that we find ourselves doing that we wish we had not done that is, in all reality, the human condition. It is where we find ourselves more times than we would like to acknowledge. And so this morning, as we relate to a passage written some little under 2,000 years ago, God, we pray that you would speak to us through the frustrations of one man who lived before us, might we find a bit of direction in our own lives. In your son's name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. One of the more frustrating parts of this passage to me is that phrase that evil is right there with me. That there is this going through life where I find myself doing things that are embarrassing and it just seems like, like even through as I'm, as I'm trying to do what is right and do what is good, I still find myself living with a bit of regret. This passage is way more important than just a high pitch in baseball. It's about, it's about life. It's about regrets. It's about anguish. It's about self-loathing sometimes. I mean, when you read this passage, what sorts of emotions does, does it conjure up within you? If you are the one writing this about yourself in those frustrations, that's a, that's a very 
transparent place to be, is it not? To, to be able to speak to, this is how I want to live, and yet I find myself falling short of that and making mistakes along the way, and it, and it seems to be that sin still lives within me, even though I don't want sin to live within myself and how I act. It's a, it's a conundrum of sorts that is being written about, and it's one that, well, that you find in our own lives. I wonder this morning, what are the things that we would associate in our own lives that we know we find ourselves doing that we wish we would not do? I mean, be not necessarily out loud or, or sharing with the congregation this morning, but relating to the frustration of the writer here in this passage, what are the things that you look back at and you're like, I just wish this would not be a part of my life anymore. I would imagine in a room, there's some of us that wish our sharp tongue would not be a part of our life anymore. We say things without thinking and we say things more harshly than we realize. As a matter of fact, sometimes we say things that sound quite clear and in, in well in our minds, and yet we don't recognize until later how those words are delivered, how they fall on ears, because they sound much differently in our, our minds as we say them than as they are received in someone else's ears. Some of us have habits of destruction. Some of us deal with feelings of anger. Some of us deal with addictions that are either known by others or we have addictions that are not known by others. Some of us deal with things like jealousy. There are the things that we see and we wish we would not fall down into that same trap of seeing someone else that we perceive as successful or having something and that we become jealous of what they have. Maybe this morning, the things that we see, maybe it is, a, maybe it is identities and places of knowing what we need to do and yet not doing those things. For some of us, maybe it's in places of immense spiritual laziness. For some of us, it may be things as gluttony. For some of us, it may be things like pornography. Let me tell you this morning, the things that, that happen in your life that you wish you did not do, that you find yourself frustrated with yourself, there's a couple of things about those tendencies that I need you to hear this morning. There's a couple of things about them as we talk about like how will we deal with this and how do we not only relate that, that Paul's walking down these roads and we too are dealing with these roads, but what are a couple of, of these tendencies that we can see? And the first thing I would like to point out to you is, as Paul writes in, the, in his letter to the Corinthians, you are absolutely not on an island for feeling this way. If you've ever been frustrated with yourself for falling short, folks, there, is, there are not many tools of evil more effective than isolation. Isolation is something we oftentimes do to ourselves, and you probably recognize it in your own self. Most of you are, are old enough, whether in teenage years or in adult years, and some of you who are in younger years and coming into you're starting to learn your own tendencies. When your feelings get hurt, where do you go? When you find yourself frustrated, where are you? Like physically, where do you go? And if you find yourself in an, in an isolative nature that you withdraw, you need to recognize that sometimes withdrawing, I'm not, I'm not saying that withdrawing is not from time to time a good thing to do because it gives you a chance to think, a chance to compose. And yet also it is in withdrawing too much that we can isolate ourselves and feel like we are the odd person, we are on an island, that, we are, we are, that there's no one else dealing with the things that we deal with. And let me tell you this morning, you are dealing with what is common to man is how the Bible refers to it. It is the human nature of, of, of living in a sinful world, of dealing with feelings of anger, rage, jealousy, or, or whatever the, the things may be that you wish you do not do. They are common to man and they are things that we... And so buying into the lie and isolating yourself that you're somehow an outcast or somehow different from everyone else is nothing more than a tool evil wants to use to separate you from people. Folks, this is one of the reasons 
while you hear us at ECN pushing you into things and suggesting that you be a part of things like small groups and Sunday school classes. It's one of the beautiful things that if we were to look around the, the sanctuary this morning or the congregation this morning, there are small groups of people who, who keep up. And sometimes those are very biblically centered meetings. As a matter of fact, there are three or so, three or so that will be taking place right after this. They're happening in different parts of our building. And one of the things about that that is good, don't get me wrong, is a continued discussion about the Bible and continued discussion about learning and those sorts of things. But probably just as important and in some cases more important is the social existence that takes place in those things. That's why it matters. It's why being in a small group together so that you're not, so that you have less tendency to isolate and feel like you are walking down this Christian life alone. That's why being a part of small groups matters. Because, because evil would love nothing more than to tell you that the temptation or the things that you do that you wish you do not do make you the outcast. I would like to go back and point out that in the letter to Corinth, Paul says these words in chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. He continues on, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, He also will provide a way out so that you can endure it. While relating this morning to a passage of saying, why do I find myself doing the things that I wish I do not do, do not allow evil to separate or isolate you as feeling like you are the one person on that island. The other thing that you need to recognize in this passage is the nature of the person who is saying it. Someone describe for me for just a moment, what are the, what are the ways you would describe Paul? What words might you give to him? You think of Paul, how do you describe him? Committed. Committed, I like that. Anything else? Confident. Confident, absolutely. Bold. What else? Educated. Educated. Let's stop there for just a minute. I'm not so sure that it wasn't his education that fostered that sense of boldness and confidence because in, in his learning and in his being considered one of the smartest mans of his time, some argue the smartest, but of, of one of the smartest men of his time, I need to point out something, folks, that sometimes we say things like the key to breaking a cycle is either awareness or education. And, and I want to point out this morning that's not necessarily true. Human knowledge is inadequate in defeating this place. If Paul is one of the most educated, smartest men, then you can draw a very clear line in saying, you know what? It's not knowing what is right or wrong that keeps you from doing what is right or wrong. Amen? It's not just the knowledge of those things. I mean, as a matter of fact, Paul being one of the smartest men of his time, think about it from this perspective. How many of you are golfers? Any golfers in the room? I heard a hmm, I think bump is. I've played with David Bell before. He does not call, he's shaking his head, does not call himself a golfer, all right? When you play the game of golf, how many of you, when watching someone swing, you see their swing and you're like, that's it? You know what I mean? Like, that's what I need to do. And then when you address the ball, do you do that which you know you should do? I mean, stick with me here. It's not just in, in, the, in the place of golf. How many of you, when you hear even our praise and worship team lead on a Sunday morning, Folks, have some incredible vocalists. Between Jared and Jeremy, Stephanie and Pam, uh, Landon when he's here on Sunday mornings, uh, Kate and Riley when they sing on, like whenever you have those individuals who are singing, you know, and are back there, how many of you know what a good singer sounds like? You know, like I enjoy the voice. There's a, an older country uh, 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 singer by the name of Allison Krauss. I think she has a beautiful voice. I enjoy the voice of Zach Bryan these days. Like the guy's got a good sound. Let me tell you what, I know what a good sound is but it doesn't mean that I can do that. You understand? If my kids were here, they would shout out amen. He cannot do that. 
It's not just about knowing it. I, I think for a moment here, in the place of a baseball swing as I started this conversation, I know what pitches to swing at, and yet for some reason I cannot help myself. I still find myself from time to time walking back to the dugout in that walk of shame because I've done the things that I do not want to do. So it's not in human knowledge. That's another thing that we need to recognize in this. And then another one is one that I would say, you know, human resolution probably isn't going to get it done either. At least it's been my experience. When you think of resolution and kind of making up a, a decision, how many of you uh, can remember, I mean, this is what, July 9? How many of you can actually remember what your New Year's resolution was this year? Anyone? Yeah, that's probably enough case in point, right? Like, I don't even remember. Now, I'm going to tell you what, I'll tell you one of the reasons I don't remember is because several years ago, I, uh, I kind of took the stance that New Year's resolutions were ridiculous because if you know something is good to do on December 15, why are you waiting till January 1? You know what I mean? Like, if you know it's good, do it. There's no need in, like, waiting. But, but even still, the, the aspect of a, of a resolution is not necessarily going to make the difference. You're still going to find, you can, you can declare this. This past, uh, before summer got out, Steffi and I started having conversations about what our summer would look like. And we recognized that our kids' summer was kids, both of them, that their summers were slammed. Between high school camps, uh, our family taking some time away, uh, our kids being involved in NYC, uh, we have one kid who will be getting prepped to go into the senior year of sports, another kid who's getting prepped to go into a, a lineman school, and like those sorts of things happening, we started looking around and realizing that though our kids' schedules were wide open, mine and Stephanie's weren't that bad. And so we talked about like, what is a good way to spend our summer? And so having moved recently, we thought, you know what, let's start having people over, let, let's start planning and, and like gathering with folks and doing that more consistently, more planned out and, and more methodically. And so we started, had several different kind of groups over or families over. We've, we've kind of been whittling through and meeting with ministry area folks for the most part. And, and so we decided in the latter portions of the summer, we would meet uh, with maybe Sunday school classes in small groups. Now, I, I kind of warned the, uh, the Sunday school class that I had over first, like, please don't tell everybody because I don't want there to be a, a church, you know, like we got invited to the preacher's house type thing going on. Okay. So let me tell you this, kind of working our way through. And I figured if you're going to start by having a Sunday school class over, you might as well start with the best class. Amen. <laughs> Some of you are like, huh, I don't remember being invited. I invited what I will call the ECN saints over. Uh, that is our most, I will use uh, Abraham's words, our most mature class. There we go. Had our most mature class over this past week. They came over to the house, and let me tell you what, if you want to have an incredible meal, it's kind of hard to, 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 to get away from saying, yep, that's a, a very, very good class. Let's get together. Let's eat a meal together, because they were bringing sides. Me and Stephanie were providing the meat and, and, uh, and such, and so we were getting excited about all that. Let me tell you, they show up, and this is one thing I really learned to appreciate about this class. I said bring a dessert and or a side, and let me tell you what. There were sides there, but I'm pretty sure the, out, the desserts outnumbered the sides two to one. That's my kind of meal. You know what I mean? Like, I'm talking there was like chocolate pie, pecan pie, pumpkin pie. There were three different types of cakes. There was something in a bowl this big, and all I know is in there it had whipped cream and brownies and Butterfinger pieces, I think, and pieces of heaven. I don't know. It was just great, you know? And then, but there was one other thing that got left, and I'm going to tell you, it's not really a—I'm not normally the, the one who goes for this. There was an orange cake. And it had like real thin sliced orange kind of like twisted and decoratively put up on top of it, you know, which is all fine and good. But you all know as well as I do, you can make something look good that tastes awful. You know what I mean? Like you've been there, you've seen it, you've ordered these things. 
This orange, I'm not normally an orange cake person, but I heard somebody talk about it, and so I thought, like, okay, I'm going to try this too. And I take a slice of this orange cake, and let me tell it was not like, I'm not normally an orange person, but it was not like anything that I have, no, like the texture was a little bit different, in a good different. And I don't even know how to describe it. The, the, the icing had like a buttercreamy type with like almost like orange zest or like a marmalade mixed into it. I don't, I don't know good words for cooking. I just know it tastes good, okay? And I remember thinking to myself like, man, that is A+. And for some crazy reason, I did not do this. This is, Don't come up with your conspiracy theories. For some crazy reason, I don't know how much of it, but a bunch of that orange cake was at my house when everybody left. I mean a bunch of it. And I'm going to tell you, Miss Stephanie went to go see some family, and I was at the house, and there's this orange cake. Hey, it's my house. Y'all can judge me, but it's my house, my rules. So when you leave cake at my house, I don't feel the need to cut slices. I just walk up with a fork every now and then. All right? So if you ever come to my house and you see some cake left over, cut off the clean side because the other side I've been eating on. Okay? So, like, I start munching on this, and I'm thinking to myself the whole time, like, Daniel, you know you have been trying to cut out sugars and desserts and those sorts of things. And yet on the other side of me is like, but the orange cake is there. And there's cold milk in the refrigerator. And these two things, it is my duty to bring these things together. You know what I mean? Like, this is how it should go. And so I started thinking to myself, like, I, I, know, I know I'd need to not do this. And yet, I think I have determined the best way to not eat that orange cake is to go ahead and eat it all so it's not there anymore. Like, that's the best option I've got. So I've been commencing in it, and there's not very much left of it. Let me tell you that. Resolution to not have desserts. Resolution to cut sugars out of my diet. Not, maybe not completely, but cut them way back. It just seems to me that resolution is still inadequate. I can make a decision here <coughs> mentally in my mind on Sunday morning that I'm no longer going to do the things that I, that I don't want to do, and I'm not going to get caught in this trap again. But unfortunately, very similar to a New Year's resolution, we find ourselves more times than not right back repeating these words. And sometimes our lives become very frustrated. Our minds get very frustrated because we feel like a broken record in the, in the statement of I keep doing the things that I wish I could not do. So my question for you this morning is then how do we break the cycle that Paul's talking about? How do we create something or do something or, or what can be done so that I no longer have to walk back to the proverbial dugout with my head down, dragging a baseball bat, knowing that I have done it again. One of the things that Paul talks about here is, is actually, has gotten a bad rap over, <clears throat> over the years. He talks about the nature of law. Now, let's, let's understand that oftentimes Paul, Paul speaks negatively toward aspects of law, but let's speak for just a moment about the good that is found in law. When you have a set of rules to follow, how does that help us? Speak complimentary for just a minute. How do the rules of life help us? They give us boundaries, do they not? They give us guidelines and things to stop at and know that like, okay, so this is some sort of a line and, and we don't need to do this because it's written into the, into the kind of the rules of sorts. And, and those, are, those can be good things that help us. As a matter of fact, sometimes we may need to make law, if you will, make boundaries in our lives that say, you know what, I'm not going to do this no matter what. I know that we're getting a little bit further back into the, the feelings of making resolution here. But, but when Paul talks about allowing the law and the rule to kind of take hold in who I am, I think there's some truth to be found in this. I, th I think there's good things, and let's not just throw out. The problem is, the problem is that we've seen what happens when law becomes God. It's not like when the rules become more important than the God we serve. That it becomes more important 
that we follow the Ten Commandments more so than we know, love, and serve the God who wrote the Ten Commandments. Understand? So, like, understand that, that law and rule can be good, but, but I mean, you're seeing this, this kind of term. It's, it's, not just about, it's not just about following law. It's about understanding that, man, it's about understanding that this is more about the relationship and honoring the God who wrote, who, who gave us things like the Ten Commandments or even the other laws or rules or, or things that we, we try to adhere to. Paul continues on in his writing, and I think this may be the place that we, we find our anchor for the morning. He sits in this place of saying, with the frustration of what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death, continuing in this place of despair. And yet, as he oftentimes does, he swings back and gives his own answer. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Folks, let me tell you something this morning. Something that children and teenagers coming back from camps these past few weeks will testify to. There is a drastic difference between making resolutions or learning knowledge and have an encounter and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ to help you with these things. There's a vast and a huge, huge difference. Maybe this morning as we close, and I'd invite our, our praise and worship team to come back up and they're going to lead us in a song again as we close. Maybe this morning as we close in our time of worship, you know, I learned something this past week about repairing metal. I, I have a sawmill, a hobby kind of tinker with from time to time, and I enjoy the things that I make from that. And unfortunately, as I've used that, I had, I had bent a piece of metal on that. And so I, I, at one point, I'd taken one of the pieces back to a good friend of mine who's a welder, and I said, Robbie, would you mind helping me fix this? And so he helped mend that part of it. But there was this other part that was bent because I'd put too much pressure on it. And, and I had a guy there who was helping me. I said, man, we need to bend this thing back in place. And, and I, said, I said, so like, you know, we'll put ratchet straps on it, a big ratchet, and we'll pull it back together. And so I, we started pulling. I got it lined up just perfectly. And my buddy looked at me. He goes, hey, man, that's never going to work. I said, why is it there? I pulled it back straight. Now, when I let it go, it'll be there. He goes, no, no, man, in order to fix metal, you have to take it past that point and then let it relax back to the, to the place you want it. So if you want to fix something, you don't just go to the place of fixing. You almost swing past it and then let that metal come back to where it will rest from that point forward. And so I, I bring that up to say this this morning. As we close in worship, it would be so easy for you to ask God to do something in your life as you stand or sit where you are. But maybe this morning, it is time to go a bit above, beyond, and past what is normal. Maybe this morning, it is as we sing a song together, you want to move from your seats and take a posture of kneeling and ask God not just to forgive you of the things that you do, because you relate so well, and we relate so well to what Paul is saying. But maybe you find yourself this morning saying, God, I, I want to swing this pendulum much further than just to where I think is fixed. I want to swing it into kneeling, humbling myself in front of you, asking you to be the God who cleanses and who heals. God, in this life that you've given us, our goal is to be found righteous in your eyes. God, we know that part of this system that we live in is one that involves a sinful nature and sin at work in this world and, a, and an evil that is the enemy of all that is good. And it is that evil's desire to continue to trip us up, continue to keep us from becoming the holy people that you've called us to be. And so as we, with not one of us being able to escape this process, God, as we move forward, trying to do the things that we want to do, to be the good that we know you're calling us to be, as we work through sometimes the disappointments of making mistakes and looking back with regret, with frustration, with embarrassment because we have fallen trap into doing the things that evil has prompted us to do, 
God, we pray this morning that You would help us to become the righteous people, the holy people that You've called us to be, that You would work within us because we know, God, there is no resolution, there is no law, there is no thinking or education that will fix, that will remove evil. Simply the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, God, we ask that You would create in us, that You would work through us, and that You would make us the holy people that You've called us to be. God, we love You this morning. We thank You for who You are. And we look forward not only to serving you throughout this week, but to walking back out into our lives. God, to, to be better Christ representation. We love you. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. And you are dismissed.